0: Well, it's a joy to be back with you all. Thank you all for your prayers and thoughts this past week. Uh, on Saturday afternoon, last week, I think it was so eight days ago, I just thought, it's really hard to breathe. I should go to the doctor. And uh, they ended up saying, yeah, you, you probably have pneumonia. And so by Sunday, I had turned full Darth Sidious mode, and uh, my voice was, was completely gone. And um, yeah, praise God, on Monday, I started, I started feeling better. So thank you all for your, your prayers and for your support. And so I'm just gonna have a cough every like four and a half minutes. On, so it's on Nick to mute me. So that's, uh, we're gonna have to see how on top of his game he is. Last Sunday, hardest test. <coughs> In 2010, Dr. Anne Fischel of Mass General Brigham, she created the Family Dinner Project to promote the benefits of families enjoying meals together. They write on their homepage, Over the last 25 years, research has shown what parents have known for a long time. Sharing a fun family meal is good for the spirit, brain, and health of all family members. Recent studies link regular family meals with the kinds of behavior that parents want for their children. Higher grade point averages, resilience, and self-esteem. Additionally, family meals are linked to lower rates of substance abuse, teen pregnancy, eating disorders, and depression. We also believe in the power of family dinners to nourish ethical thinking. They go on to note the benefits uh, of family mealtimes include preventing obesity, overcoming bullying, less addiction to screens, improved relationships amongst siblings, and more. I'm guessing most people in this room, we would agree in general that, you know, family meals are important. But my guess is that we would also be surprised if we looked at the research at how beneficial and impactful these regular mealtimes are. I mean, can something so simple, so mundane, so ordinary, can it really be such a blessing? Is it really worth reorienting your schedule to make that such a high priority? Can't you get those benefits in more efficient ways? This morning we come to Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 where we'll consider the importance of the church's family mealtime. Uh, We'll consider the importance of the weekly gathering of God's people, where we assemble for worship and instruction. And and more than just church being a place we we go to fill up on spiritual goods, church is actually where we go to work. It's the time when we gather as God's children to feast on God's word and encourage one another in the faith. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to chapter 10 now. You'll also find that in your bulletins. You remember the first four chapters of Hebrews highlighted Jesus' supremacy over the prophets, angels, Adam, Moses, Joshua, rest. And then in chapters 5 to 10, we learned of Jesus' better ministry as our high priest, his better sacrifice for our sins, his better covenant for his people, the perfection which he alone grants. And then in chapter 10, verse 19, so just a few verses ago, the author began his conclusion. And so uh, I I think my argument is that if you want a summary of the book of Hebrews, the best place to look is chapter 10, verses 19 to 31. A few weeks ago, we covered the first half of this summary in verses 19 to 23. (coughs) There, the author reviewed his two most important theological truths that he's been kind of building on for the last six chapters. Number one, Jesus' sacrifice grants us confident access to God. Number two, he is our high priest, right? So this is is a summary. And then the author drew two applications for us. We should draw near to God because Jesus' blood has purchased this great privilege for us, and we must hold fast to Christ because God's promises are faithful. And thus we arrive at chapter 10, verses 24 to 31 this morning. We'll have four points, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Help each other prepare for the day of judgment. Help each other prepare for the day of judgment. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 31. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. Well, our, our first point is found in verse 24, entitled Consider One Another. The structure of these first two verses, 24 and 25, is really important. So in 24, we find the main command. Do you notice how at, at the beginning of 22, 22, it says, let us draw near. 23, let us hold fast. 24, let us consider. These are the main commands. And then verse 25, he's going to unpack how we do verse 24, how we do this initial command. But so for now, let's just focus on verse 24. The wording is both simple and yet profound. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love And good works. Apparently the fact that Jesus' blood washes us clean and that Jesus' resurrection guarantees his priesthood does not make us indifferent to good works. Far from it. In fact, the gospel compels us to care not only about our own good works, but it causes us to have a loving concern for the holiness of others. The command isn't, consider how you can be more holy. Of course, you should do that. But instead, it says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Apparently, I have an incomplete Christianity if I am only concerned about my own spiritual growth. Instead, I need to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. And so, I you know... I think verse 24 is absolutely explosive to the way most Christians in America think about their faith. Uh, For many, they think that believing in Jesus is a private thing, where instead it's a personal thing. Uh, They think of it as a private thing that you decide in the quiet of your own heart, and just as no one can make you believe, so you shouldn't try to influence others. Uh, Live and let live, as they say. Yet, you know, what verse 24 shows us is that we are supposed to influence others. We want to influence them in a good direction. We want to help them obey. Of course, this isn't a one way street in the Christian community, right? Uh, where some Christians are the really mature ones, who, you know, they're the ones that exercise their gifts, they're the ones who help others follow Jesus. Meanwhile, the rest of us, we just simply sit and receive. No, this is a mutual upbuilding, Beloved, this means that you are never too mature to stop needing other people's stirring up. And you are never too immature to give this kind of stirring up. Uh, This is something that we are all called to. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, whether six months, six years, or six decades. Uh, Notice also how the author doesn't simply say, stir up one another. But consider how to stir up one another. The point, Christian, is that you are to think, plan, strategize, so that others would do good works. Apart from your diabolically loving plotting, there are good works that they would not do. Uh, So Christian, how are you helping other Christians grow spiritually? I had one former pastor state regularly, uh, if you say you are following Jesus, but you're not helping other people follow Jesus, I don't know what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. He said, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying the pattern of the New Testament is, if you're following Jesus, you're trying to bring others along with you. Whether it's your kids, your spouse, whether it's your neighbors. Beloved, do you have a loving concern for the spiritual state of others? There is love and good works that God intends for your brothers and sisters to do, and he's going to use your life to stir them up to that such that if you are not there doing your work they will not do the love and good works that God wants them to do it reminds me of when Kate and I were newly married we had we had joined the church uh, as an engaged couple and it was in the the DC area and it was it was growing and and so a lot of people basically every weekend somebody was moving and you know, they would send out these emails on the church social saying, moving help needed. And as a single guy, I can remember getting those emails and kind of just ignoring them. That's right. Uh Uh-oh. It's not that I, like, hated these people, obviously. I was just basically indifferent to their needing the help. I had more important things to do, like reading the Bible, We're playing flag football, then helping my brothers or sisters move. And so I can still remember um, where we were in our first ap- apartment. I think it was just like w- literally weeks after we had gotten married. One of those emails had been sent out. I thought nothing of it. And then around dinner time, Kate said to me, hey, so did you see so-and-so's email? Yeah. Well, they need help on Saturday. I thought you could go over. <laughs> well, what am I supposed to say? And then I remember someone at the church had a baby. Meal train went out. Again, I thought nothing of it. Nobody wants my cooking. Uh, But then Kate said, hey, I'd like to bring them a meal. Could you drive it over? Well, again, what was I supposed to say? I wasn't trying to be a jerk. It's just, if I'm honest, I never really crossed my mind to inconvenience myself to serve my brothers and sisters. Uh, I was going to church because I had really good preaching. I could get my, my, you know, spiritual download every week, and yeah, it was great. I was just kind of focused on my own little world. And so in both of these examples, what happened? God used Kate to grow me in love and good works. God sovereignly used my wife's compassion and love and her words to spur me on the love and good deeds. And so, I mean, just to be clear, I think without her, I would not have done those things. There are literal good works that I would not have done apart from her encouragement. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the kind of spurring on work that we are to do for one another. Verse 24 says that we cannot be indifferent to to the holiness of other Christians. This means we need to be willing to ask and answer awkward, intimate questions. This means that we need to prioritize our relationships. It's not that you have to be an extrovert or that privacy is a bad thing, but we can't stir each other up if our relationships are shallow or superficial. We keep people at arm's distance. We need to open up and ask others to open up if we are to do this stirring up work. Now, just again, to be clear, like, so I'm saying we need to have a kind of loving concern for one another. I don't mean it in a creepy way. Like, like don't mean it in a nosy way. I don't mean it in a prideful way. You could totally go wrong uh, in this area, so don't, don't do that. But we are to have a loving concern for the growth and progress of our brothers and sisters. Now, verse 25 is about to get really practical about how we do this, but let me suggest two other ways before we get to, to verse 25. How do we kind of cultivate and accomplish this kind of loving concern for one another. (coughs) Excuse me. Number one, let me suggest we pray for one another. So if you are a member of Trinity Church of Bedford, you've committed to doing spiritual good to 48 other people. That is a big responsibility. How are you going to fulfill it? Well, one of the main ways you can express this kind of benevolent responsibility is through prayer. Uh, Here's how the opening page of our membership directory puts it, which Mark had referenced earlier. The opening page, it says, when you joined Trinity Church of Bedford, you committed to doing spiritual good to the members of this church. This membership directory is intended to help us make good on those promises. If our covenant reminds us what we've committed to, this membership directory tells us to whom we have committed. One especially important way you can use this directory is to pray for other members. Perhaps taking three names a day, you can intercede to God on their behalf. Whatever you read and pray about in your own devotions that morning, simply pray for them. And then check this out. It it says, continuing, reflecting on Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, our passage this morning, one pastor writes, a church membership directory is the second most important book you own. A church membership directory is the second most important book you own after the Bible because it keeps before your eyes the brothers and sisters you're responsible to help to heaven. God has called you to help specific brothers and sisters fight against sin. He's called you to stir up particular people to love and good works. He's called you to encourage certain people every day until it is no longer called today. So after you pray for someone, consider sending an encouraging text or note, perhaps let the person know you prayed for them. Our relationships should inform our prayers, and our prayers should fuel our relationships. It's fitting that today we happen to publish a new directory. Uh, So if you're a member, let me do encourage you, somebody has it. They're either in the back. They look a lot like bulletins. We try to make them tricky like that. We try to trick people out. Um, no, that's not why we do it. But they are at the back. Let me encourage you, grab it, put it in your Bible, um, and just as you're praying, as you're reading your devotions, do that. You can put it on the fridge, right? And just every day, just flip it over, pray for the person at, or the people on that page as you're going about your day. You can pray for the, the members of the church at night as you're doing devotions with your family, with your kids. There's just a, a thousand different ways that we can fulfill these commands to to consider one another and stir one another up. The this, this second way, briefly, Uh, is that we would serve one another. And here I'm thinking specifically of the various ministry teams and opportunities we have at the church. Um, On the the one hand, the elders and the ministry leaders, we work really, really hard to minimize the number of volunteer positions on any given Sunday or just in the life of the church. Because we don't want people serving needlessly in in kind of ancillary areas. We don't want to burn people out. Uh, But of course, there are ways that that we can serve to help others grow in Christ. So right now, praise the Lord, there are some people serving in childcare so that we can listen to the sermon in a relatively unmolested environment. Praise the Lord, right? Praise God for those people serving in that way. Uh, Thank you to everyone who's done that for the last two years. What a blessing it has been. I praise God for the hospitality team that sets up chairs so we don't have to stand for an hour and a half, Uh, right? That sets out the coffee, that sets out the, the books and the Bibles, what a wonderful way of considering your brothers and sisters by showing up at 9.15 and helping unload the car and set up. Uh, thank you to everyone who has been doing that. What an encouragement it is. Keep doing it. Um, because we are to have, ultimately, this is, this is a heart posture, right? It's a heart posture of loving concern for the good of others. Because, of course, that was Christ's heart. He had a loving concern for us. That's why he came. And then he calls us to imitate That same attitude. So that means as you are reading through the directory, let me encourage you as you're praying through it, if you see someone you haven't seen in a while, send them a text. See how they're doing. Uh, If you see a new couple in church and you don't think they're very involved, invite them over for dinner. Uh, When we have this kind of love, we imitate Jesus' own loving care for his people. Let's turn to our second point at the beginning of verse 25, entitled, The Church Here, we're specifically told how we're to show the kind of loving concern for each other. And verse 25 begins by stating how we would fail to accomplish this. It reads, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. You see, apparently the problem of infrequent church attendance isn't a modern thing. In fact, it goes back to the earliest days of the church, there is, uh, there's a ton we could say here about the, the beauty and the glory of the, the gathering, how it's a foretaste of heaven, of uh, redeemed humanity, right, reconciled to one another through the blood of Jesus, um, forgiven, unified, called, filled with the spirit. We can talk about that, it's a picture of heaven on earth, but for the sake of time, let me just ask, you know, what happens when a member is cut off from the body? In short, members die without the body. Uh, and of course, I mean that literally and metaphorically. Uh, I think I've told this story before. Many of you know my father, and uh, a number of you know that he's actually missing two fingers on his left hand. And that happened when he was, I think, 16 years old. He was on a ride-on mower, mowing his friend's grass on a hill, and it tipped over, and he, he lost two fingers. I don't mean to be grotesque, But did those two digits, those two members of the body, did they last long, do you think, apart from the life-supplying and nutrient-giving body? Well, no, obviously not. They died. And so it is for the Christian, a member of the body of Christ who is cut off from the church. You see, we need the church like members need the body. We need the church because it's where we receive God's word. It's where our souls feed on Christ. It's where our hearts go to be recalibrated to the truth. Members cut off from the body die, and a Christian who deliberately chooses to forsake gathering with the saints, that is one of the most damaging sins you can commit. It is one of the most harmful sins you can commit. And that's because... Deliberate non-attendance is usually a, a doorway into sin or a mirror of sin. It's not always, but I'm going, to say, I'm going to say the vast, vast, vast majority of the time. It's a doorway to sin because once God's preservative work through preaching, praying, singing, fellowshipping is undone, Christians often backslide and fall into sin. Or non-attendance, deliberate non-attendance, is a mirror of sin because if you are living an unrepentant sin, what's the one thing you don't want to do? Go to church, right? You don't want to have your sin called out. Willful non-attendance can be indicative of a heart that is hard to the gospel. You see, gathering with God's people is God's most potent weapon against the sin in your own heart that would ruin your life. That's why forsaking the gathering is so serious. Worshiping with the church is God's choice means of preserving his people. So when you go to church, don't just go to be filled up. Do that. But also recognize that when we go to church, we have a job to do. We have encouragement to give love to administer, prayers to offer, shoulders to cry on, hugs to give, smiles to greet. You see, one of the ways we stir up other people to love in good works is by not neglecting to meet together. And so let me, let me put it provocatively, but I, I think truly, it is more important for you to be regular and active in your local church than for you to read your Bible daily room went silent. It is more important for you to be active and regular in your local church than for you to be reading the Bible daily. When the New Testament was written, most Christians were illiterate. Even if you handed them a Bible, they couldn't read it. And then it was only about 1,500 years later, after the invention of the printing press, that you even could get a Bible into most Christians' hands. The vast, vast, vast majority of Christians have never owned or been personally able to read the Bible. So how did God design to keep his people in the faith following after Christ? It's weekly worship, gathering with the saints. Now, obviously, since we have printed Bibles, since we're able to read, praise the Lord. I try to read my Bible every day. I would encourage you to do the same. I'm not saying don't do that. Uh, But note this the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were tempted to fall away from Christ. You know, he's just said in verse 23, hold fast, don't forsake Christ. And now he says, keep coming to church. So here's my challenge to you, friends make the Sunday morning worship gathering the highest priority on your schedule every single week do it for your own sake do it for the souls of those you love Uh, parents do you feed your children physical food why would you deprive them spiritual food don't ask the question on saturday night should we go to church tomorrow i understand that like everyone is sick right now i'm not talking about sickness and asking that question my wife is home right now with a sick child i was home last right so we're just not talking about sickness but but if you're asking the question on a Saturday night, should we go to church tomorrow? You've already lost the game. Because at that point, you're making church an optional add-on uh, that we try to fit into the conveniences of our life. And then when it's inconvenient, you know, well, it, it's the first thing to go. To be clear, obviously, it's not as if you're automatically saved by going to church or anything like that. Um, please don't hear me saying you should feel bad if you have to stay home because you or your kid is sick. I'm not saying that. I said this is an encouragement to make the Lord's Day a day for gathering with God's people and the encouragement that we all need. Let me just make four brief points of application here um, about the the priority of gathering. Number one, come when you don't feel like it. (coughs) The truth is this is the main reason Christians neglect to meet together. Uh, Perhaps you've had a long week. Maybe it's because you've sinned, or you're discouraged, or you're depressed. Maybe you don't get a lot out of the preacher or the music. Well, Christian, if that's you, let me plead with you. When you most don't want to go to church is when you most need to be in church. We all need to reorient our hearts to Christ. We all need to be reminded of the gospel. And God graciously gives us that opportunity every Sunday. Second, come when it's inconvenient. I'm thinking here in particular of when on vacation, when your work is piling up, when family is in town. It's easy to think of all the reasons we shouldn't make gathering with the saints a priority. (coughs) I know this can be tricky, um, but let me humbly suggest that your visiting in-laws or sibling or children, what they most need is not another two hours with you, but for your life and for your calendar to boldly declare the supremacy of Christ. Now, like, please don't be a jerk about this. Please, 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 please don't be a jerk. The goal is not to be offensive. But whether with unbelieving family or believing family, one of the best ways to love them is to demonstrate the priority of worship to you and to your family, uh, as well as getting to invite them to join you. You never know what they're going to say. Uh, whether or not they come, you can still love them, enjoy their trip, do all kinds of fun things together while recognizing Christ's priority over all. And, and let me just say that going to another gospel-preaching church while on vacation is similar to the example of family. Okay, so, excuse me. This is not a hard and fast rule. I'm not saying that if you miss a Sunday, you're automatically in sin. Uh, Please don't hear me saying that. But even for your children, or certainly for your own sake, it can be so encouraging to worship with other saints while you're on vacation, to go to other gospel-preaching churches. Uh, It is one of my favorite things to do on vacation, is to go to other churches, in fact. The purpose isn't to keep a running tally of how long has it been since I missed church, but rather to ask, what is the priority in my life and calendar? Third, at this particular church, we ask you to come on Sunday evenings as you're able. Uh, We know that with work and distance and health and school, you name it, it it isn't always possible. Uh, But Sunday is the Lord's day. And so we shouldn't blush at giving him the whole day. We don't want to be shaped more by the American work week than we are by God's word. Uh, The New New Testament describes Sunday as the Lord's day. And so we we want to try as much as we're able to, to give that over to him. And then fourth and finally, come to church even when your church isn't perfect. Praise God, the Lord doesn't require perfect churches to edify his people, because on this side of heaven, there are none. Uh, Praise God, he even uses normal ones, like this one, with okay preaching, uh, with sinners, to sanctify us, to grow us in godliness. Brothers and sisters, isn't isn't that amazing? That God uses our feeble and frail efforts to help other people make it to heaven? Like you don't know what you're showing up on Sunday morning or Sunday night. Uh, You don't don't even know how God is using that to encourage others to press on for one more week. Um, So often we don't know what others are are bringing in, carrying in on Sunday morning. And just your presence, your smile, your love, who knows how the Spirit uses that to encourage people one more week, one more week. Well, if the first half of verse 25 shows us that we can't stir up one another to loving good works if we're neglecting to meet together, what are we supposed to do? Kind of on top of that, or in the place of that, well, that brings us to our third point in the second half of verse 25 entitled Encourage. It reads, But encouraging one another, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is so crucial. We help each other do love and good deeds, not just by listening to a sermon on Sunday mornings, but by speaking to each other throughout the week. The Sunday morning gathering is absolutely crucial, yes, but it's meant to overflow in lives of love and encouragement and exhortation. It's not just pastors that are called to this work. Rather, the whole church is summoned to it. I can't tell you how much I need and I am thankful for the stirring up of other Christians. You never graduate to a point where are like, well, I really don't need other Christians now. It just doesn't happen. Whether it's getting together with Scott to discuss baptism, or Jake and Zach to discuss Proverbs, or Dave and Mark as we think through shepherding, or Nan Pond's questions after service, or Lauren Tucker's insights during the evening service. Friends, I need your exhortations. I need your encouragements. We all do. Back in chapter three, the author put it this way. Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. Trinity Church of Bedford, do you see how each one of us is called to this work. This is why we often talk about the importance of discipling one another. We use that language here, discipling at Trinity. Uh, one of the definitions that we give of discipling is that discipling is less about adding events to your calendar and more about adding people to your life. Discipling is less about adding events to your calendar and more about adding people to your life. What I mean is that we can use our mornings or our lunch hour or hospitality in evenings to do spiritual good to one another, right? So this coming week, my guess is that you will eat, if you're like me, at least 21 meals over the next seven days. Why not give two or three of them to meeting with another Christian for encouragement and accountability? And you might think of a specific brother or sister that you can mentor or disciple, um, that that would if you walked away from this sermon kind of at one point of application and you just thought through okay who's who's one person I can get together with to encourage them in the faith, maybe we get together every other week Who's one person, that would be a huge win just, just kind of that one point of application you just looked through the directory and said who's who's someone that maybe they live near me, maybe their work schedule's similar to me um, whatever it is that I, I want to try to get together with them. And you don't need to like, tell them ahead of time, like, hey, can we get together for the next infinity to read the Bible together? <laughs> you could just be like, hey, do you want to read this book? It's four chapters long. And, uh, and then see where it goes. And if after four weeks, you're like, okay, that was fine, then great, praise God. You had four weeks of encouragement. Or maybe after four weeks, you go, wow, that was really good. Do you want to do another book? And go from there. I promise the hardest part In these kind of encouraging, discipling relationships, the hardest part is initiating. The hard—it's guys—it's even hard for me. I'm a pastor; I get paid to do this. The hardest part is just stepping because there's always the fear of rejection, right? You just say, "Hey, do you want to read this book?" And they might not like the book, or they might say no to me, or they might—you know—whatever it is. But if you will take a leap of faith and just invite someone to get together, to pray, to read the Bible. This is one of the most important ways we stir one another up as we encourage each other to meet together and meet together. And, uh, and so let me just say that we don't want these kinds of discipling, hospitality, speaking the truth in love, encouraging one another. We don't want these relationships to be defined by demographics. Do you know what I mean by that? It won't do to have all the single people over here and all the couples over here and all the families with a gaggle of kids over here, all the empty nesters in this corner. Friends, that isn't what the Bible has in mind at all. On game day in the NFL, it wouldn't make sense for all the the linemen, the the big blockers, to kind of get over in a corner and say, hey, we're going to do our thing over here. And then all the wide receivers said, yeah, and we're just going to have our own plan and we're going to do our own thing over here. Right, would that be a unified, effective team? No, of course not. On a team, the members need to, to work together. How much more so in the church? God has arranged the body with every necessary part, and we need one another. And so living together as the family of God means that singles and families, couples without kids and families with a gaggle of kids, all of us do life together. Uh, So to those families with kids, don't just have families with other kids over. Uh, Invite singles over. Invite couples without kids. Uh, If you're single, don't believe the lie that you can't have a family over for dinner. Uh, No, invite them in. And if they say, well, it's actually really hard for us with all the kids to go, then say, okay, can I bring a meal over to your place? And we just do it there. And let me just say how encouraged I am as one of your pastors at just what, what an amazing job you guys do. And even like with the three babies born in like a nine-day period, man, it's been so encouraging just kind of hearing through the grapevine how you're serving one another. Uh, praise God for the DeBons having the child's kids over and, uh, and getting to bring them in so that Heidi and Isaiah can have a baby. Uh, I've been so encouraged. And Ian sent out the email being like, hey, we could, we could use help and hear about singles and couples going over to serve them and be with their family. Brothers and sisters, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What a a great picture that our unity is not that, you know, we all have this one fact about us that's kind of on an earthly level true, but the one fact that we have in common is Christ. It's the gospel, and it unites us. Living together as the family of God means that we live together as the family of God. And the reason why this task of encouraging one another is so urgent is we see the day drawing near. This is the day of judgment, the day when Christ comes to judge the world at the end of time. And so that day is supposed to loom large on your calendar this week. That day is supposed to impact the way that you spend your money and your time and use your words and who you text and so that brings us to our final point, in verses 26 to 31, entitled, The Last Day. Now, thankfully, Paul Tucker is going to help us think through some of these themes tonight. So I don't have to spend all my time here. Uh, Paul's going to walk us through some similar themes, uh, talking about the day of the Lord and judgment. And, and actually, the, these six verses, the main idea is really simple. The author is showing how high the stakes are for this, stirring up, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another, work. He's just trying to show, like, what's on the line. Why should you sacrifice and labor so diligently at such tasks? 4, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The point is, if you love your brothers and sisters, you want to keep them from that. You don't want the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries to take place with one of the 48 members of Trinity Church of Bedford. Because you love them, because Christ loves them. And so we get up early to meet, we stay up late, we hop on Zoom calls, we pray. To sin deliberately is to sin in a calloused and indifferent way. As Christians, of course, we all sin. But one of the marks of being a genuine believer is confessing and repenting and turning away from our sins. Right? We don't hide it or justify it. We kill it. But for those who double down on their sin, for those who cherish it and refuse to give it up, well, they should have no confidence that Christ's sacrifice covers their sin. Instead, for those who stubbornly refuse to repent, there is only the fearful expectation of judgment. The topics of hell and punishment, of judgment, they are not popular these days. But of course, that doesn't make them any less true. In verse 28, the author makes the point that if you disregarded Moses, you were put to death. Therefore, verse 29 how much worse punishment will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. You see, falling away from Christ is no small sin. In many ways, it is the worst sin imaginable. It's to trample underfoot the Son of God, to mock his blood and profane his sacrifice. It's to act as though his death was pointless and that you don't need him. It's to outrage the spirit of grace. The person here, who's being described, I think it's someone who has taken of the Lord's Supper and then fallen away. Okay, so that, that language where it says he's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, I take that to be, this is referring to someone who at one point was identifying with the covenant community as a Christian, they were in the membership directory. They were taking of the Lord's Supper, and then they've fallen away. That person, okay, yep, sure. Theologically, we have a few seconds. Theologically, I think they were always an, an unbeliever. They, you don't become a sheep and then turn into a goat. You don't unadopt yourself from God's love. But there is a special kind of unbeliever that is an apostate. Someone who used to identify as a Christian. Who, who has taken of the Lord's Supper and then fallen away. The, the punishment here, it's, it's unbelievably dreadful. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but the fearful expectation of judgment. Because we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, make no mistake, there is nothing more fearful. There is no more terrible judgment than falling into God's hands without a sacrifice for sins. It doesn't matter the theological knowledge that you have. It doesn't matter the years of faithfulness you once had. If you fall away and abandon Christ, There is only judgment. The world likes to say that many roads lead to God, and it's true. Every road leads to God, but only Christ leads to the enjoyment of God. Without his sacrifice, our sins will undo us. The Lord is judge. That's what makes Jesus' sacrifice so amazing. uh, That he, the God-man, should come to earth, live a life without sin. And then he fell into the hands of the living God. On the cross, he was treated as an adversary. He was consumed by a fury of fire. There was judgment. God said, vengeance is mine. And Christ went to this fate knowing that would be his fate because of his love. Because of his care because of his concern for his people and their welfare. He died on the cross as our sacrifice, as our substitute, bearing the punishment, bearing the judgment that we deserve, so that we could go free, so that we could be indeed ushered into our heavenly home. Friends, if you will trust in Christ, that forgiveness of sins is yours. It is offered freely at no cost to you. The only cost was to him if you will but put your faith in Christ. But if you will not, judgment awaits for all those who refuse God's grace. And so, brothers and sisters, it's in light of that great day that we now gather and encourage. Uh, This week, Christian, Trinity Church of Edford, keep on loving one another. Don't be indifferent to the spiritual state of others, which means, yes, share the gospel with unbelievers with outside, but also disciple and encourage and pray for one another. Because Christianity isn't a spectator sport, where we sit on the sidelines and watch the professionals play. Instead, it's a team sport, when you put your faith in Christ, God gives you a helmet, God puts the pads on you, as it were, and he says, go team, go help the team, play your part. As a member of the body of Christ, of Christ you need the church, and the church needs you. So get in the game, and let's get to work as we see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we tremble when we consider that great day. We confess how it does not often impact our day-to-day as much as it should. Oh, Lord, as your servant Jonathan Edwards prayed, would you stamp eternity on our eyeballs? Would you make that the lens by which we see all of life? Would you give us a loving concern for one another, for our, our kids and our spouse, for our neighbors, for our fellow church members, for our friends and family? Lord, would you, would you prevent us from being calloused or hard-hearted or indifferent, but to instead demonstrate your love for them? Help us, we ask, by your spirit, by your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.